0: Bonjour, bienvenue. Hello there. Welcome to City Breaks Toulouse episode 7, le canal du Midi. I'm going to take a little break from city life today, unusually for City Breaks podcast, and think instead about that lovely, tranquil, green, watery, shady tunnel, the canal du Midi, which crosses Languedoc-Roussillon and comes right through Toulouse. And to try and leave you knowing if you don't know already Why it is that it's often the pull that brings people down to Languedoc-Roussillon, and certainly something I think you should at least explore for a day, if not for longer, um, if you're anywhere near Toulouse. Just to set the scene, I'm going to start with a few quotations from a lovely book called Floating Through France, written by a group of American authors. They hired a boat, they went down the Canal du Midi, and they wrote essays about it. And here are some extracts just to sort of whet your appetite. OK, so the first one's from an essay by Larry Habiger, and she writes the following. We were motoring through an impressionist painting, dappled light on the water, grasses and shrubs festooning the banks beneath plane trees with their high, arching limbs, delicate green leaves, yellow, brown and green patterned trunks, where the bark had fallen away. The trees created a canopy to shade our cabin, their roots gnarled toes reaching for a purchase along the banks, where the soil had eroded. Sunflowers raised their yellow faces, or turned down as one penitents burdened by the heavy weight of their seeds. Doesn't that make you want to get in that boat? Certainly does me. A couple of other people here's uh, Linda Wattleby McFerrin, talking about the atmosphere as she was setting out for an early morning run canal side. Quote, Mallards paddled peacefully in the leaf green waters. Dragonflies skittered back and forth. A rooster was crowing, and I could hear the bells of Saint Auban. That really gives you the idea that you're lost in la France profonde, doesn't it, with the farm animals in the distant village and everything. Or what about this one from Joanna Bigger? A land of sunflowers, wheat fields, vineyards, ancient cities with red-tiled roofs, crumbling ruins wrapped in mystery. And a review on the back of the book reads as follows, telling us that the book, quote, distills the essence of la France profonde, intensely rural languor. Villages lost in the snooze of yesteryear. Well, I hope all that convinces you. So, what actually is the Canal du Midi? It's basically 240 miles of canal which links the Atlantic Ocean from Bordeaux to the Mediterranean at Set. This usefully saves you a 3,000 or so mile sea journey if you're going from Bordeaux round to Set, because otherwise you'd have to sail round the whole coast of Spain. It goes through Toulouse, and it's a very popular outing for the Toulouse themselves, of course, but also for visitors. Pop out, go on a boat, have a look. It's definitely famous for its atmosphere, as I hope the quotes I read convey, but it's actually famous equally for being the most fantastic, for its time, feat of engineering. When, in 1966, it gained UNESCO World Heritage status, part of a citation read that when it had been opened in 1681, it was, quote, Europe's biggest public works project since the fall of the Roman Empire. It's certainly true that we have to remember it took tens of thousands of workers 14 years to build it, and it was technically very advanced for its time. It was actually an inspiration for foreign engineers from all over Europe who came to see it and scratch their beards and wonder what they could do in their own countries. And again, part of the UNESCO World Heritage Citation refers to the fact that it was, quote, non seulement une prouesse technique, not just a technical prowess, mais aussi une oeuvre d'art, but also a work of art. I think it's for both those reasons that it's so well known and so loved, the engineering and the beauty. Centuries ago, in the very early centuries of Toulouse's existence, in fact, people were already dreaming of the idea of a canal to link the Atlantic to the Mediterranean. As we've said before, Toulouse was on the route from Spain to Rome, And it wasn't just pilgrims who were travelling to and fro, but goods as well. Things like metalwork products, wine, pottery, all came from Spain. They were sent by ship to faraway countries where they were going to be bought, or sometimes they were sent overland in horse-drawn carts, or ox-drawn carts even, along a road called the Via Domitia. But that wasn't ideal. It was slow, it was ponderous, it was tricky in winter, very prone to flooding. The place became a quagmire, and people kept thinking, Wouldn't it be nice if we could build a canal to link those two cities? As early as the 8th century, Charlemagne himself had dreamt of this. But it wasn't until the 17th century when two men combined to make it happen. One of them was Louis the Fourteenth, better known for other things, Versailles being the Sun King, that sort of thing. And a native from Languedoc, someone called Pierre-Paul Riquet. He's the man who made it happen. Louis paid for it. So Riquet was born in Béziers in 1608. And he started his adult life working as a tax collector. So he was travelling round the area collecting the money to finance the king's army, hence his relationship with the king. And he began more and more to think about could this be done? And instead of just thinking how nice it would be and moving on to something else, he actually set about the problem and thought right, the first issue would be water. Where would we get enough water to feed a canal? And so he set about researching it, and he found that in a place called the Montagne Noire, the Black Mountain, there was indeed a source that he thought would do the job. So he turned to the king and asked for permission and money to start work and that's how things began. He started at a place called saint Ferriol, near the Black Mountain, which you can visit today actually. That's where he built his dam. It was the first of its kind in Europe and that was the starting point for at least collecting the water to make the rest of the project work. Moving on to the first section of the canal, that actually started in Toulouse. It was the bit from Toulouse to Castelnautri that was built first. And the whole thing was eventually opened in 1681, at which point it had over 300 what they called ouvrages works. If you counted up all the locks and aqueducts and bridges and tunnels that were part of making it work, that was the number you arrived at. When you hear that, it's amazing actually to think that it did only take 14 years and not longer. It's quite sad to note that Riquet himself died just a few months before it opened. This is a story which is told in a book called Notes from the Longer Dock by Rupert Wright. He reminds us how Riquet had spent the best part of the last two decades of his life, dedicated himself to the construction of this canal, and that he was so keen on having it finished that he risked everything he owned, all his money and all his family's money, to make it happen. Although Louis Fourteenth was paying for it, A few years into the project, he began to think perhaps he didn't want to come up with any more cash and Riquet had to look elsewhere. And so this is how Rupert Wright describes what happened next. Quote, instructed his solicitor to start selling his properties. Now aged 73, he was prepared to sell his daughter's dowries and pay for the work himself in order to complete the project. As he bitterly remarked, I have made a canal to drown myself and my family. He didn't even live long enough to drown himself in it. There was just one short section of the canal left to be dug, from the river Eros to the Etang de taux the large inland body of salt water, separated from the Mediterranean by a small spit of land, when Riquet fell ill. He summoned his son to his bedside and asked how much more there was left to dig. One league, he was told. One league, repeated Riquet. These are reputed to be his last words. He died on October the 1st, 1680, owing more than two million livres... As, of course, we now know, the canal was finished and eventually his family were able to profit from it because there were tolls to pay for using it and eventually it did go into profit. But poor Riquet wasn't going to know that. However, he's not been totally forgotten. There's a statue of him in Béziers, his hometown, and there's a monument to him in a little town along the canal called porte lauragais It's about 50 kilometres from Toulouse. Massive 20-metre-high obelisk put up in 1827 with his coat of arms on it, and lots of Greek gods, Minerva, to represent wisdom, and Mercury to represent commerce, and two more gods facing each way. So Neptune faces the Atlantic, and Venus faces the Mediterranean. The finished canal caused a wave of prosperity all across the region. All kinds of people could travel and send their wares abroad. Farmers, manufacturers, people exporting raw materials, all profited from it. And it reached its zenith in 1856, when it's believed that over a 100,000 metric tons of goods and a million passengers used the canal. 1856 was the high point, because something happened in 1857 that gradually led to its decline. And that was the opening of the railway line from Set to Bordeaux, so exactly the same route that the canal had taken. And of course, it wasn't long before people realised that that was a much faster, more cost-effective way to travel or to send your goods and so the canal gradually fell into decline. But then the unexpected happened. In 1996, UNESCO declared the canal a World Heritage Site, and that renewed interest. From about 2000 onwards, people began to turn their minds to the idea of, would tourists like to come and enjoy the canal? You can see what the attraction is in the sentence written in the rough guide, which describes a trip down the Canal du Midi as being, quote, a gentle, restful chug down a tunnel of greenery. And sure enough, they repaired it and people came, the cyclists, the runners, the boatmen, the tourists. An early visitor, 1787 in fact, was one Thomas Jefferson, who'd come all the way from America, probably for other things as well, but he travelled the length of the canal, took about two weeks over it, and wrote some diary notes about it, praising the rich soil of the area, the vines, the overhanging willows. He was particularly keen on what he called the delicious local wine. His favourite, apparently, was one called Muscat de Frontignan. He noted the abundance of fish and the fact that maize and mulberries and beans all grew alongside. He noted, too, that it was of historical significance. There were, a great good number of chateaux and good houses in the neighbourhood. He spent two weeks wandering down the canal. And actually, I've seen it said that if you wanted to do the same today in a boat, it would take about the same amount of time, because there's a speed limit of eight kilometres an hour, and the locks aren't open all the time, about nine till seven, I think. I think maybe they even shut down for lunch, which is very French, is it not? So you can't hurry. That's a good thing. Jefferson certainly thought so, because he summed up his journey in the following words, Of all the methods of travelling I have ever tried, this is the pleasantest. So, if you think about the Canal du Midi, all kinds of pictures probably come to mind. A cool, shady tunnel made by the trees on either side, flowers, birds, man-made beauty too, the locks, the bridges, the boats. So, let's just go through a few of those and tell you a little more about them. The trees, in fact, were planted right at the outset, as the canal was being built – the idea being that they would provide much-needed shade for people travelling along the waterways in this hot part of southern France, and also they would prevent too much water from evaporating, so they served a double purpose. In one of the essays from Floating Through France, Stacey M. Williams describes the trees as lunging across the canal from both sides and reaching so far that, they appear to be lovers, straining to kiss. She writes too about the roots of the trees, which were plentiful, gnarled, twisted, creeping and slithering towards the water, grasping the ground, then delicately dipping in their toes. As she says, it's no wonder these trees flourish, because, let's face it, they can drink all day and all night long. People who write about trips down the Canal du Midi always mention the sunflowers, field after field of tall, bobbing flowers. But they also talk about the cicadas, which you can hear whirring in the background. In his book Cycling the Canal du Midi, Declan Lyons describes the spring as being a time when, quote, butterflies emerge and swallows and martins return. Other writers talk about ducks and kingfishers. So nature at her best and in abundance. People talk too about the man-made beauty, things like the locks and the bridges. I've seen references to violet-shuttered stucco houses or to the barge-like boats with lace curtains. The bridges are very popular, there are about a 130 of those and people describe gliding underneath them as onlookers are up on the bridge watching them go by. Most of the stone bridges and the lock keepers' houses, which are called Maisons d'Eclusiers, are as old as the canal itself, so it really is a little piece of history all along the route. I enjoyed Larry Hebbiger's description of it from Floating Through France. Quote, Every lock has an elegant stone house flanking it, Many are festooned with flowers, petunias lining the tops of the lock gates, geraniums on window sills and lawns, oleander marking boundaries for pathways, even hibiscus pruned to grow like tall trees. The locks too are very canal du midi, mostly oval lock basins. Little stopping points that punctuate your journey might take you 10 or 15 minutes to get through each one, And you know that as you do it, you're participating in a process that's been pretty much unchanged since the 17th century. Again, we have Larry Habecker's essay to thank for a nice description of going through just one of these locks. Quote, Passage through the locks took on a pattern, much as our days took on a pattern of ease and tranquillity. Enter the lock, loop the bow and stern lines to the hook dangled by a boatmate from above, pull the lines up, Throw them around the bollards and pull the boat against the wall of the lock. Hold on tight while the lock fills and fend off the boat from the walls as it rises. When the gates open fully, cast off, push off the bow and climb aboard or cycle on to the next lock. And I think we can add repeat all day long or maybe even for two weeks long until you feel totally unstressed. Perhaps the best known lock is the one called the Ocluse l'Océan, so Ocean Lock because that's at the high point of the canal. When you stand up there, you can look down one way to the route to the Atlantic in the west, and if you look the other way, then you know that the canal's going all the way down to the Mediterranean, at the little town of Set. That's why, I think, in the early days, the canal was actually called the Canal des Deux Mers, so the Canal of the Two Seas. I've quoted quite a few times from the book called Floating Through France, and now I'd like to talk about another book which I found equally an idyllic read, and a book that made me want to just get down there as soon as possible. And that's a book called Cycling the Canal du Midi by Declan Lyons, which was published in 2009. It's really mainly a practical guide to the clues in the title, Cycling the Canal. It tells you all about the weather to expect in different seasons, how to hire bikes, gives you some little maps, tells you things like when the market days will be and all the places you pass through. It's divided into five stages about 50 kilometres each worth of journey from Toulouse all the way to Sète, so going through places like Carcassonne and Béziers. And it gives you really detailed information on the routes that you'd be taking, tells you things like where there are cycle paths, where you can come off the canal and go not too far to find somewhere to shop or something interesting to see. And even better, it gives you lots of historical background on the little places that you might pass through. Just to give you a bit more flavour from the book, going to concentrate on just one section, the first one in fact, which details a journey from Toulouse to a place called Port Laurais, fifty two kilometres worth of cycling. I don't think there's any suggestion you should do it in one day. I'm sure you could, but if you want to stop off at all the places he mentioned, it might be much better to pootle along at a slower pace. And the fifty two kilometers doesn't include the coming off the canal to visit places. But most of the places he mentions are really very close. Okay, so if you do that, one of the first places you'll go through is a little place called Castanay, where Declan Lyons is very careful to explain the turbulent history of this place, how it was sacked by the Vandals in the 5th century and the Arabs in 640. And then along came the Black Prince in 1355. It was demolished by Cardinal Richelieu in 1626. And even that wasn't the end of its troubles, because Wellington arrived with his army in 1814. And you can wander around thinking about all that history and he points out a couple of places to look out for. Chiefly, the Vieux Hôpital, the old hospital, actually dates from the 13th century and the lockkeeper's House, dating from 1752. Cycle on a bit further on this route and you'll arrive in Montesquieu-Loraguet, which is a little hilltop town, just one kilometre off the canal and which he describes as being, quote, an excellent example of Toulouse architecture. You can pop over there to see its 14th century church or it's not one but two chateaux. One is the town hall these days. I think the other one you can't get into, it's behind closed gates but never mind, you can have a quick look. Or just enjoy the little narrow streets from which you often get views of the plain and the canal. Back on your bike for a bit and you'll be in Villefranche de Loraget. Again, only a couple of kilometres off the canal standing on the old Roman road, the Via Aquitania a little town with lots of fine red-brick buildings and a 13th-century church with a plaque on the door telling you that it was built by one Jeanne, Countess of Toulouse. Sounds sleepy, sounds beautiful, although he does describe its rather, quote, faded glory. So one of those little French towns to wander around and just enjoy. A bit further up the canal comes somewhere called Avignonnier-Loraguet, site of a key event during the war against the Cathars, which Declan Lyons describes in quite some detail. This is how he describes what happened. On the 28th of May, 1242, three Occitan knights and twelve of their sergeants broke into the quarters of the most hated inquisitors, Guillaume Arnaud and Étienne of Saint-Tiberry. The assassins used axes to break into the room where the inquisitors slept, and, using the same weapons, butchered the two together with nine of their supporters, including two Dominicans and a Franciscan. He goes on then to explain two legends associated with this event, one being that the people who were killed went to their death singing the Te Deum, and that this led to Dominic becoming Saint Dominic, being elevated to sainthood, and the second legend, is that there was a local man who kicked and laughed at the bodies of the dead priests and his punishment for that was that he developed a leg wound which was never cured and of which he eventually died. There's also mention of one or two other places to see in the town. The church, some of the 16th century mansions, which just like the ones in Toulouse in fact were built on the prophets of Wode in the 16th century. There's an old market building and a statue of Joan of Arc All of this just a couple of kilometres from the canal side. I think if you actually plan to walk or cycle the Canal du Midi, the book would be indispensable. But actually, even if you just fancy a metaphorical journey into La France Profonde, you could do very well by just wandering through the pages of Cycling the Canal du Midi. So, I hope I've managed to convey the idea that there really are very many reasons for being in love with the idea of the Canal du Midi. You can admire it as a wonderful feat of engineering, just anyway, and particularly given that it was built in the 17th century. You can admire the way which it blends into the landscape. That too was mentioned actually in the UNESCO citation, where it talked about modéler le paysage, modelling the countryside, and the fact that the canal is un cadre de verdure, a green framework, une source d'enchantement, a source of enchantment, so again, this idea that it's clever, but it's also beautiful. Then there's the fact that it passes through some of France's most beautiful countryside. Again, that's described well by Declan Lyons in Cycling the Canal du Midi, when he writes that, quote, it passes through some of France's most beautiful and historic countryside. Rolling plains enlivened with sunflowers, dark mountain ranges, oak forests, tinder-dry garrigues, camargue-like marshland, and sandy coastlines. Then there's the fact that along it you can't help but get a sense of history, knowing the Cathar story, a few brushes with figures of national importance, both French like Cardinal Richelieu and British, the Black Prince and the Duke of Wellington. Here's Declan Lyons again, The towns and villages which punctuate its route are steeped in history and culture. This area is part of La France Profonde, anywhere in France where the rural way of life still prevails. The towns and villages feel authentic and you can experience genuine French life. Along the canal, you get a few chances to experience rural French culture. For example, you might come across the joute nautique, which would be translated as perhaps a nautical joust. These are particularly popular in set at the eastern end of the canal, but you may see one in a village somewhere else alongside. So this will be when two teams get together together perhaps a village fete, or something like that, they have rowing boats and each boat has a platform on which stands one jouster who's armed with a wooden lance. Then the boats row towards each other and each person tries to push the other one off into the canal. Equally, it's a good place to spot a game of pétanque, either in one of the villages you visit just off the canal or indeed on the canal itself. Declan Lyons's advice is if you come across a game of pétanque, you should simply cycle around it. Etonque, of course, is that very French-looking game, a bit like bowls, where you throw metal balls at a cochonnet, or a jack, and see who can get the closest. And possibly from the tourist point of view, most important of all the reasons to go is just the sheer beauty, the chance to slow down a little bit, leave modernity behind, and enjoy some peace and quiet. Let's leave the last word on that to Rupert Wright, author of Notes from the Log Dock, in which he writes the following. At first the pace seems very slow but then you begin to appreciate the calm and the light. The canal is lined by plane trees, each trunk an abstract painting. Ducks gather near the bridges, kingfishers wait on the trees, joggers run past you, cyclists disappear around bends. As a cure for stress it should be on the national health. So then that about wraps things up for the Canal du Midi and it just remains for me to tell you a little bit about the plans for the next episode. Having got used to the idea of coming out of Toulouse just ever so slightly along the canal, I looked at where else you might go if you fancied a day out and I've come up with two places that I think are very much worth a visit and which are very close and easy to get to whether by car or on public transport. And those are the hilltop town of Carcassonne, a medieval stronghold whose history is horrifying and exciting in equal measure and which is one of the most visited tourist sites, in fact, in the whole of France. So I'll have a look there and at the stories that go behind it. And for the second half of the episode, I plan to take us off to a little town called Albi, another Cathar town. Wonderful cathedral, one of the most beautiful cathedrals I think I've ever seen. And particularly the reason for going there for most people would be to see the Toulouse-Lautrec Museum, because Albi is in fact the hometown of that wonderful, iconic painter and poster maker from 19th century France. So not one but two excursions. I hope you look forward to that episode and for the moment just remains for me to thank you very much for accompanying me along the canal du Midi. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I hope perhaps I've inspired a few people to go and just going to sign off then as usual in French with merci bien et au revoir.